the eighth chapter of Romans. We just kind of got started in this chapter last time. And uh, to review and get our thoughts back together just for a minute, in chapter 6, so we're, we're walking through salvation, beginning with in the first three chapters, sinfulness, wickedness, depravity, the blindness, the hardness of man in his natural state. That in the garden when man fell, man fell completely. You say rock bottom, man was on rock bottom. His eyes were blinded, his heart was blinded. He was unable to know and see his condition. He was lost and could do nothing about that. But in chapter 3, and we heard it yesterday, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God reached for man through Jesus Christ. And a sacrifice was made that fallen and depraved man could be redeemed and brought into the family of God. We saw in chapter 4 that it's not of works that man obtains this salvation, that Abraham received it by call and by faith, believing that call of God. And that's the way we receive this as well. In chapter 6, we started looking at the change of life. Not only is salvation justification, and I believe that's what people hang up on most of the time, and that's what the, the wide opinion of salvation is. It's, well, I'm going to heaven now. But there's more to that work. That is true. When someone is saved, they are justified. They are made to be right with God. Their sins are done away with. But there's a work in the inward man as well, regeneration by the power of God in that life. So we see that resurrection brought about by the power of God in the lives of those that are saved. Now in chapter 7, we looked back again at the law and another stressing that it's not of works that man's saved. When Paul, Paul's speaking of himself here, when he was lost, he was a lawbreaker and it was the law that revealed to him that he was a sinner. But after his conversion, he still struggled, warred, and fought with, fought with sin. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. In his flesh there was still a desire to rebel, still a desire to sin, still a desire to really to not do the will of God, however you want to look at that. And that warfare was left for him to fight. And it is for us as well that are saved and born again. There's two natures in every one of us. There's the nature of the Son of God that God wrought in the inward man. There's the outward nature that's under the power and influence of the devil. And that his desire is to rebel. And there Paul finds himself and, and his conclusion, O wretched man that I am. Paul couldn't keep the law before and he couldn't keep it after he was saved. How wretched that mankind is. Man is completely and totally nothing upon his own. How wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Paul says, I've got no hope in myself. I need somebody to deliver me. I thank God through Christ Jesus. So chapter 8, we started looking here last time. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the Spirit. So the work of Christ, a complete work of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, and those that are in Him, there is no condemnation that comes upon them. They have been, and, and to stress it, those that are born again, their sins have been done away in Christ Jesus, and they are not waiting to be at the end. They are at this present time justified, rendered as righteous in the sight of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has redeemed them from the curse of the law and given them life in the Spirit. For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So God sent His Son Jesus for this purpose, for sin. We heard yesterday that sin was the problem. Sin was the cause. Sin is what got man to where he was. Sin is what kept man where he was. Contrary to God, outside of God's goodness and mercy, and dwelling and abiding in the wrath of God, all of that was a result of sin. Sin had to be dealt with and taken care of in order for man to be redeemed. Well, God sent His Son for sin as the remedy as the cure, as the answer to man's sin problem, the Lord Jesus Christ was sent for that problem as a cure and as a remedy for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. And we've said many times through this book of Romans, there was no problem, there was no weakness, there was no shortcoming, and there still is not any weakness nor shortcoming in the law of God. The law is perfect, just, holy, pure, and right. But the law's weakness was right here. The law could not save me because of the weakness, the feebleness, the infirmity of my flesh. I could not keep the law. Therefore, the law could not justify me. God told Moses and the children of Israel, those that do these things shall live in them. If you do them, you can live. There is life in the law if you keep it. But man cannot keep it. Man can't earn his way. Man's already broken the commandment of God. And the Lord sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he says likeness there. He had a flesh and a body just like you and I had. A body that hurt. A body that bled. A body that hungered. A body that thirsted. A body that was cold. A body that would get hot. A body just like you and I. And the devil tempted him. The Bible says that he was in all points tempted like as we are. The picture of that word is to be tried like gold is tried in the fire. The devil took the Lord and tried him in every way that he could try him and the Lord was victorious and conquering over every trial that the devil could give him. He was found to be pure 
and perfect and without any flaw. Now for me to tell you that would be one thing and you'd just have to take my word at it. But he says he was tried. A tried stone, the Bible says. He was tried and found to be perfect. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. His death brought an adverse sentence. It brought condemnation upon sin. See, sin was the problem. Sin caused man to fall. The Lord Jesus died to be the remedy for sin. So verse 4 we'll pick up, and this is where we left off last time, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So the Lord Jesus died that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. Now, I believe it might have been Steve this week that said that uh, by faith we don't do away with the law, but we establish the law. The law is not done away with. The law is still the standard of righteousness. If God changed the standard of righteousness, then God has changed. And God changeth not according to the Word of God. Righteousness is still measured by the law. And in order for there to be a man that is righteous, he's got to measure up to the standard of the law. Well, them that are guilty, them that are unregenerated, they're measured up by their works. And we already know how that's going to turn out. It's not a, well, I don't know, maybe maybe it'll come out all right in the end. We know that them that stand before God on the merit of their works are going to be cast into a lake of fire with the devil, with the beast and the false prophet, with all of them that were deceived, with the thieves, with the covetous, with the wicked and abominable. They're all going to be cast into the lake of fire because man cannot measure up by the law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, see, He came and defeated sin in the flesh. He came and lived perfectly. He came and as the law laid out, He lived in the law. He kept it to the T. He said Himself, uh, heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle of the law shall not fail. The Lord Jesus kept every jot and every tittle of the law unto perfection so that those that come to Christ in faith and by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed unto them. He says, and we've already read in uh, the fourth chapter of Romans, that it was not written for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him for righteousness, but for us also, that if we'll come to Christ, and see God's not manufacturing righteousness out of nowhere, God has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when God looks at my ledger, He's not seeing Joseph's works and his failures, and his shortcomings, but he sees the blessed Lamb of God, the the perfection of Jesus Christ, it has been imputed onto my account. We have now the righteousness of the law 
fulfilled. That means to make replete, to level up, to furnish, to satisfy, or to finish. Now listen to what he says. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. That's to the very top. That's crammed full. The law is perfectly fulfilled. Remember, that's what it takes in order for man to be right with God. Man wants to go to heaven. He's going to have to meet the perfect standard of the law. Well, those that are saved, they meet the perfect standard of the law who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. By their placing in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has imputed unto them the righteousness of Jesus and the perfection of the law is fulfilled in them by the work of Christ. That that could never have been done before is done through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter number 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse number 21, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you. Now listen to how the church who were enemies and alienated by wicked works before, listen to how the church is going to be presented to God. Holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, not in man's sight, not in the sight of the church or the preacher, but in His sight. The Lord Jesus Christ's work was so perfect and pure, His righteousness imputed unto the church that the church is going to appear as Him before God. Those that are in Christ Jesus, those that are saved, they are holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in the sight of God. A salvation that can't be touched, that can't be taken away, that can't be hindered, that can't be hurt by the weakness and infirmity of the flesh. But now he says this at the end of this verse. For those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So you think about what we've looked at now. In chapter 7, we saw the warfare that Paul was fighting and that everyone that's ever been saved is fighting. We have, we have an inward man. John says in 1 John, the Son of God, He cannot commit sin. That seed remaineth in Him. That perfect man of God that's on the inside, Paul says the treasure in an earthen vessel. But we have the nature of Adam as well that desires to sin and rebel. And there's a warfare continually. And, you know, people can, can snoot up their nose and say, well, I live it and I live it every day. They're a liar. They are a liar. We don't live the perfection of the law every day. And Paul said he didn't either. When I would do good... That I, don't, that I do not. What I would, that I don't do. What I wouldn't do, that I do. I continually find myself in a place where I'm doing the opposite of what I desire. Now that can be both ways. In the flesh and in the spirit. 
Whatever we do, one of them is going to be contrary. If we're following the flesh, the spirit lusteth and warreth against the flesh. And if we follow the spirit, the, the flesh lusteth and longeth against the spirit. And they are contrary. And as we'll see in just a minute, they're enmity. So where does that leave us then? How do we know whether people are saved or not? Witness. That's it. So David. David was a man in the Old Testament. David sinned. David sinned exceedingly. It'd be hard for me to have any confidence in that man's salvation seeing the sin he committed. Lot was a man, and just the, the truth of the matter, if Peter did not write in the New Testament that Lot had a righteous soul, there's no way I could say that Lot was a saved man. Now I realize that's not always the case, and it shouldn't always be the case. But can you really look at people's works and determine whether they're saved or not? And I, I say that, and don't take me wrong, but there's, there's lost people that are fine people that go to church, that are church members, that help their neighbors, that love their families, that have been baptized, that go to the altar when the church goes to the altar, that sings in the choir when the choir sings. It's like that all over. There's tares among the wheat by the Word of God. So how do you know? Well, there's, there's a way to know. And it's not through works. But those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So here, the rebirth. What we looked at in chapter 6, where he said we're buried with Him in baptism and raised to life with Him. That regenerated life, here's the evidence. This is, this is how that work takes place. It's not hocus pocus. People think the Spirit of God is hocus pocus. And I think it ought to be stressed more and more today that the Spirit is not, it's not something that God sends to us in a sense of it's God's servant. The Spirit of God is God. The Spirit of God is as much God as God the Father on the throne of heaven and Jesus Christ that walked the face of the earth and resurrected from death in victory. The Spirit is equal with Him. So this is God working inside of man. That's why Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, this great mystery, this is not God sending a, a little angel down to help me. This is God coming in the Spirit of God and dwelling with man. It's God with man. And so, for they that are after the flesh do mind. That word means to exercise the mind, have sentiment, or opinion, to be mentally disposed or inclined. So those that are after the flesh, 
Those that have not been regenerated. You know what their mind is continually? What are they mentally disposed or inclined to follow? They that are after the flesh are inclined to always do what the flesh wants to do. Is that not where we were when we were lost? Our our thoughts are intense, as Brad already said. Our thoughts and intents were to please us in whatever form and whatever fashion that we could obtain that. We sought our own pleasure and our own will. But they that are after the Spirit, they've had a change of mind. Same word. So the Bible says they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Those that have been born of God and God dwells in, they have a mental inclination and desire to follow after and seek after the things of the Spirit. It should be no surprise that the world and lost folks seek after the world. That's all they know. That's all that they have. But saved folks... Folks that God dwells in, their mind and their desire is in the Spirit. Listen to what he says in Mark. And some, some, may, some may balk at this just a little bit. But here, Peter, Peter has not received the Holy Spirit here. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. Peter, Peter says, hold on, let me read it. 33. Mark chapter 8. Verse 32. So he says he's going to die. And he spake that openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Lord, I'm not going to let that happen to you. Now we've got the benefit of hindsight. We know what God's doing in Jesus Christ. But put yourself in Peter's place now. Here's the man you believe to be the Son of God. The man that popular opinion says is going to set up a kingdom and deliver the natural nation of uh, Israel out from under all the governments and elevate them. And he's saying he's going to go die. Lord, I'm not going to let that happen to you. God forbid that that happen. He rebuked the Lord. This is what the Lord said. But when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter, you're looking on the natural side. You're following after and thinking after the flesh. You're not savoring the things that be of God. Them that are saved, they have an inward desire. Now this, it's a shame. This is going to sound like a big statement. But this is the truth. The saved folk have an inward desire and a savor for the things that be of God. Those that are lost, you know where their savor is continually? They're just like Peter. They're not thinking about the things that be of God. They're thinking about the things that pertain and that are tied to the flesh. So he says in Proverbs 23... Proverbs 23, verse 6. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
So what's in the man is what he is on the outside. The reason that folks' minds and the reason that their opinions, the reason that they're inclined to always do what's best for this man and they don't care about the things of God, it's because that's what's within them. They're after the flesh. And those that are after the flesh, they mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So again, the word mind, the same thing. The mental inclination or purpose. So those that are inclined after the flesh, the carnal mind... And those that are minded carnally is death. There's only one direction that following after the flesh will lead us. There's only one end that can come of following the flesh, and that's death. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 6, now he's talking here about widows, but she that liveth in pleasure, so she's following after the desires and pleasing the flesh, she that falleth, liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. That sin and the following of the flesh unto sin, all that that can produce in man is death. All it can produce in man is rebellion against God. Those that are minded after the flesh, their continual desire is in opposition to God's desire. Their will, their want, is continually opposed to what God wills and God wants. In Ephesians chapter 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. So the course of this world. They were following just like every other man had followed. They were under the influence of the prince and the power of the air and they were following just as Adam and Eve followed the desire of the flesh and the end result was in verse 1, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know what following the flesh brought? It brought death. It brought death to you and I. We found ourselves dead before the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was because of our natural inclination and purpose. He says in Peter that they as natural brute beasts. You know what brute beasts do? They've got a natural inclination and that's what they do. They do as they are naturally inclined. They follow their nature. Man's got that same nature as well. And man's natural inclination is to death, rebellion, destruction, and the wrath of God. Let them them grow. Let them come to years. You know what they will naturally be inclined to do? To rebel, to disobey, and to sin. That's within them. Those that are after the flesh, they mind the things of the flesh. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So to be in the Spirit, 
How do we have a spiritual mind? It's not natural. It's not something that we have naturally at birth. That nature is carnally minded. But to be spiritually minded requires a work of God in the heart. That God, as He says in Ezekiel, chapter number 36, some of my favorite scripture, Ezekiel prophesies of the work that God is going to do in man. And he says, A new heart will I give within you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. A work of God changing the mind and the inward part of man. The heart, he didn't change my heart, the blood pumper out, but he did take the center of my thoughts, my desires, my love, my affections, that inward man, the man that makes me. He did take that man and change his inclination and his purpose by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He changed my mind, if you'll have it. That's what he's saying here. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So an interesting choice of words is enmity. Not an, not an enemy. He doesn't say an enemy because I may have an enemy today and ten years down the line we reconcile and come together. Enemies have reconciled. But these are two enemies that cannot reconcile. They are at enmity, hatred, adversity, deep-seated hatred. A hatred that cannot be overcome. You know what this is? This is the devil and the Lord. That's the two natures that's at war here. The nature of Satan, that old dragon, and the Lord, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are at war against one another continually. In them that are saved, the carnal mind is at enmity with the inward man. And the carnal mind, yourself, your own flesh, has a desire to go away from God in any way possible that it can go. Your flesh has a desire to rebel against God. Your flesh has a desire to lay aside the things that be of God. Your flesh has a desire to, to, to serve the devil, the God's truth. That's what's in the natural man because the carnal mind is enmity against God. If it was not for the change of the inward man, if God did not walk a work inside of those that are saved, man would fall back into sin and fall back the way he was before. The carnal mind will never desire the things that be of God. They are at enmity one with another and it is not subject to the law of God. 
It's not subordinate, obedient to what God says. Neither indeed can be. It is not possible. Mankind and the seed of Adam, the flesh is the problem. Continually, the flesh and the natural man is the problem. You talk about depravity. That's where man's at. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, will the Gospels being preached, why isn't the whole world believing it? The God's truth, only a few that's in the churches believe it to the salvation of the soul. There's a remnant that's saved today. Why is that? Why is that that this gospel, going forth conquering and to conquer, why is it that there's so many that's unregenerated? He says this, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest, lest, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so, he has a lost world. He has them blinded. He has them deceived. He has them under the cloak of darkness, lest the light of the gospel should shine unto them that they would be saved. So the gospel's hid to them that are lost because Satan has them blinded. Well, that don't sound good. Well, then how then are those that believe, how are they saved? For we preach, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He's drawing a picture back to the beginning that in the beginning was darkness and God said, let there be light and there was light. Well, you know, God did that for everyone that believes. Everyone that believes was blinded by the devil blinded and in darkness. The gospel was hid unto them. They were unable to see it. And the only reason man sees it is because God says, let there be light on that heart today and enlightens them to the truth of the Word of God. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if God does not do this, just take yourself back to the beginning. If God never says, let there be light, what condition is the planet earth going to be in today? Would light have ever formed outside of the Word of God? Would there have ever been any life outside of the Word of God? Would there have ever been any hope there outside of the Word of God? It would have remained void, without life, darkness over the face of the deep. But the Word of God brought a change that life could be had. And there we are today. 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the enlightenment of the Holy Ghost of God brings light and knowledge and understanding to the heart of man that he could escape the clutches of the devil and be born again and brought into the family of God. But it's not by the nature of man. No, your carnal mind is enmity against God. Your carnal mind's still at enmity against God. Well, it's up to you. I'm going to tell you something. If that's the way it was and it would have been left up to me, I'd have left here and I'd have never come back. I'd have never been convicted. I'd have never got lost. God came by me individually, enlightened me, and drew me. You believe it's individual? You believe there's an individual and a personal call of God by the Spirit that brings light to the heart of them that are unregenerated and draws them into the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ? There has to be. It don't, don't look like there's any hope outside of that. Back in Ephesians 2 where we were just a few minutes ago, <clears throat> you who are dead. Now, I don't know of any better picture you could get than being dead. What's a dead man going to do? Is a dead man going to help me do anything? Is a dead man going to help himself? You know what he's going to do? He's going to go where he's taken. He's going to do like he's positioned. And he's not going to do anything about any of it. He's dead. Well, there's where man was. Man was dead in trespasses and sins, following the spirit and power, the prince of the power of the air, among whom we had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There we are. We're carnally minded. We're inclined after the things of the flesh. We're dead in sins. And what hope is there? Of ourself, there's none. I saw that there was no Savior. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation. Well, that's what he says here in Ephesians. But God, boy, he's, God's going to interject Himself for the salvation of mankind. He did that for everyone that's saved. Had God not intervened in man's place, man would have went on in his sins and died lost and undone and lift his eyes in hell. And whether, whether you believe that for yourself or not, know this, had God not intervened and sent His Son Jesus, there would be no means for salvation. There is salvation and a means for it today because God intervened in helpless man's case. He does it individually as well by the call of the gospel. But God who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. When did He quicken me? Well, I got up and come to Him before He ever done that. I was dead. He quickened me when I was dead. No, I tell you when I got quickened. I got quickened sitting there about where Charles was. The gospel come by one night. And the revelation of my lost condition, it was revealed to me that night 
that I was lost and undone, and the weight of that really settled in. Now, I had been asked on a baseball field by a young man. I'd never give any thought of it whatsoever. But a young man that I grew up with that is lost today. He said, have you ever been saved? He's probably 10, 11 years old. And I guess I would have always answered yes to that. But that day, I couldn't say the word yes. I said, no, I've, I've not. Now, that was a realization but the gospel hammered that home one night. You know what that was? That was awakening me out of the deadness of my sins. God awakened me before I came to the altar. He enlightened me to the condition of my soul. God was already working, already quickening me. And if God had not quickened me, I'd have sit there just like I had the other 13 years of my life. I'd have sit there and never felt anything. And I'd have got up and went out the same condition I was in when I came in. I'd have done that for my whole life and I'd have lifted my eyes in hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, He quickened me there in my sins and He raised me up and set me in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. The Lord did that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore I testify in the Lord that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Vanity means moral depravity. Incapable of sound judgment. That's where I was. I was incapable of judging myself a sinner. I was walking in a vain mind that was empty of any sound judgment having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. There's, that's mankind's state right now. That's mankind's state all through the history of this world, there is man. There's where he is. There's only one race of people that does not fall in that category, and that's those that are born to the second man, Adam. Those that God has brought into His family through the regeneration of the Spirit. By nature, man's inclined to follow the flesh. But God, who's rich in mercy interjected himself in the powerlessness of man. And this was not of man. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leper heal his leprosy? Can the deaf man cure his hearing? Can the blind man fix his eyes? Can the lame man Fix his legs. Boy, I tell you what man is. He's helpless. That man that was born blind in Jesus' day, he was helpless. That lame man that was laid at the pool, he was helpless. But you know what happened? Somebody come by that had power to help him. An outside force. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. There is our help. 
The Lord puts it this way in Matthew chapter 19, that familiar account of the rich young ruler coming to the Lord. And at the end of it, he goes away sorrowful. And the Lord Jesus says, how hard for a rich man to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now I've heard, I've heard people say that, well, that's a gate in the city at night in those days that they'd have to lay off everything off the camel. Well, that's not what he's talking about in Matthew. That sounds good, but he's talking about impossibility. And he took the largest animal that there was in that part of the world in that day and the smallest opening that there was and said that large camel is going to have to go through that hole. And they said, Lord, this is impossible. How is anybody going to be saved? And he said, with men, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. What's got to happen for the rich man to be saved? God's going to have to get him through. It's impossible with man. Why, preacher, we'll get him in. Not without the Holy Ghost and power of God, there will be nobody brought in and saved. With men, it's impossible. That's the Word of God. So verse, verse number 8, back in Romans. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot... There's no place there for a change of answer. Cannot the absolute negative. Cannot please to be agreeable or acceptable unto God. Those that are following the flesh cannot please God. The works of the flesh in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 15 and verse number 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, we're going to make a sacrifice. Well, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. It's that that turns his stomach. Uh, you look up that word, it, it reminds me of roadkill and how that, that that's been there for a week and that smell and that stench, you know what that is? That's an abomination to me. When I get near that, when I'm working around that, and I get that and breathe that in, that turns my stomach. That's what man does to God. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. In Isaiah 66, he gets it just a little bit closer than that. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb, as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation, is as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, is as if he blessed an idol. What happened? They had fell away from God, and into sin, and even their service to Him was corrupted. And I realize I'm about out of time. But if you read in Haggai, he asks a question 
the Lord asks a question. If the priest has a holy meat fall into the skirt of his garment and he touches things with it, is that holiness transferred? And the priest said, no, it's not. So something that's holy, that's been offered on the altar, if this was holy that had been on the altar, God said it was holy and I lay it on this bench, this bench does not make it holy. That holy meat does not make the bench holy. It's not transferable. But if this bench is unclean and my book lays on that unclean bench, then this is transferred and it's unclean. So that holiness is not transferred by touch, but uncleanliness is. So you know what that says? When I'm unclean, when I'm unregenerated, when I'm unsaved, it doesn't matter what work that I do for God. Don't matter how much money I give to the church or to the poor. It doesn't matter how good that I am in life. It don't matter how many services that I come to at church. All of those are tainted by the uncleanness of my soul and they're unacceptable unto God. God said, those that kill an ox, they've brought an ox to the temple to offer to God. God said, when you kill that, it's just like you killed a man. You've committed murder. That's what their sacrifice had become because of their iniquity. There is no pleasing God in the flesh. We must, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's all that's on our heart. Anybody got anything you'd like to say?